The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. This morning's reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 through 25. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I add my welcome to Derek's. My name's Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's good to see everyone this Palm Sunday morning. Uh, This morning, we're breaking in our study in the book of Deuteronomy as we concluded the study of the Ten Commandments last Sunday, uh, as we began the celebration of Holy Week. And throughout our times together over the course of this week, leading into next Sunday, Easter Sunday, we will be looking at selected passages in 1 Corinthians. Now on this Palm Sunday morning, we're jumping in the middle of chapter one of 1 Corinthians, and as you just heard read this passage, you may have wondered, why did we select this text for Palm Sunday? Well, the anticipation that the people had of the coming Messiah was that he was going to be this powerful leader who would free the people from the tyranny of Rome. And it was assumed that the Christ would establish his kingdom through military dominance. But as Jesus revealed throughout his earthly ministry, his kingdom is an upside down kingdom compared to the kingdoms of the world. See, in Jesus's kingdom, dying to self is actually the pathway to life. A leader is defined by sacrificial service. It's better to give than to receive. And exaltation comes through humility. And strength is found only in admitting one's weakness. And as Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem that day, to crowds cheering and waving palm branches, he did so riding on a donkey. And again, we see the upside down nature of his kingdom. Instead of riding a war horse, which was the mark of a conquering king, he comes in on a lowly donkey, symbolizing peace. And Jesus knew full well what awaited him days later as he would go to the cross for the people that he had come to save. And this morning, 2,000 years later, as we think about the events of Holy Week, we have to begin by asking ourselves a few questions. What do we make of this upside down kingdom of Jesus Christ? 
how do the events of Holy Week intersect with and impact our daily lives? And as we begin to ponder those questions, let's go before the Lord. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word as we open this text. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, your steadfast love is better than life. For you've made known to us a path of life. And Lord, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we ask that you would give us a taste of those pleasures this morning as we open your word together. Lord, send your spirit to minister to our needy hearts. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, yesterday was April Fool's Day when people celebrate various practical jokes. Or as Mark Twain put it, the first day of April is the day we remember what we are the other 364 days of the year. Speaking of fools, though, this morning we're going to see that as followers of Jesus Christ, we can't escape being thought of and even being called fools for the nature of the gospel in which we believe. Now, context is extremely important, especially when we are jumping in, parachuting into this book of 1 Corinthians. Again, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth. Corinth. He's the church planter, the one who planted this church, and he writes this very letter to address a series of issues that were present in the church. And in the previous section to our passage, Paul's confronting divisions that had arisen among the believers in Corinth. And he's addressing those in the church who claimed to be wise, but they were using their wisdom in order to divide the church, in order to promote themselves. And you might have picked up as it was read that the word wisdom is used in various forms. It's used 10 times in this short passage. And so Paul is confronting these fellow Christians, his brothers and sisters, over the issue of human wisdom over against the message of the cross. And as my seminary professor, Richard Pratt, points out, he says, though these people had not trusted worldly human wisdom for their salvation initially, they had begun to emphasize such wisdom over the gospel itself. They had become, in essence, wise guys. Now, the difference between a wise guy and a wise person is that a wise guy uses his intelligence to wield it against others and use it for his own gain and to harm others. But a wise person uses his or her intelligence to serve, to help others around them. And so Paul is revealing that the wisdom that many of the Corinthians were so proud of was actually opposed to the gospel. And it was utterly foolishness. Now in our brief time before we come to the table this morning, we're gonna look at this text by way of these two points you see outlined in your bulletin. We'll see first what the world pursues, eloquent words, miraculous signs, and we'll see what the church has to proclaim, which is God sovereignly calls sinners to faith in Christ crucified. As you see in your worship guide, the title sermon is Christ Crucified, the Power and Wisdom of God. Would you say that you are very confident about your faith in Jesus? I have to admit that though I'm a pastor who preaches from the pulpit, I find often in my day-to-day that I'm not as confident in my faith as it might appear on Sunday mornings. And I wonder if you could say the same thing about your faith. 
See, I fear that if, if my faith is, is put under the microscope, if it's scrutinized, if it's applied pressure to it, then it would seem to be foolish and silly to those around me. But in this text, Paul says that if you ever fear that people will think that your faith is foolish and then you're, you're idiotic to believe it, he says, you're right, because that's what they believe. But see, here's where the rub comes in though, because I don't want to appear dumb, to appear weak, to appear foolish in the eyes of others. I want to appear competent and clever and significant and worth listening to. I've actually lost count the number of times when I've been in a conversation with someone new, whether it's on an airplane or at a social gathering and the subject turns to vocation and I tell them that I'm a pastor and I get some form of the variation of the response, oh, good for you, conversation ends. Now, it's not that I'm being openly laughed at in those moments or ridiculed, it's just these people really don't, aren't interested in the name of Jesus. He has no bearing on their lives, or at least that's what it seems in the moment. For those of us who are united to Christ, this doesn't lend itself to much credibility and importance in the eyes of the unbelieving world. But notice in verse 17 what Paul says. He says, God didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with eloquent words of wisdom so that the cross would be emptied of its power. As Christians, our temptation to express the gospel in both words and ways, we think, so that it doesn't seem, come across being foolish. We can make it less offensive and make it more palatable to those that we're sharing with. But Paul says, when we do this, we're actually emptying the gospel of its power. Now to be clear, Paul is not against human wisdom. Nor is he saying that there's no value or benefit that can come from human wisdom. Because there's all sorts of helpful benefits that have come through human wisdom, including in areas such as medicine and science and law. But what Paul is specifically addressing here is that he's revealing that human wisdom falls short as it relates specifically to the knowledge of God and his salvation. And in verse 18, he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The cross is the great divider of the human race. Every person that has ever been born must reckon with the event of the cross 2,000 years ago. How one responds to the cross of Christ determines and is the indicator of one's eternal destiny. And what Paul is saying is that those who are perishing live only according to the standard of human wisdom as they mistakenly see the cross as foolishness. The world says there's no possible wisdom and power that is found in the event of the cross. A naked, bleeding, dying man 2,000 years ago on a tree, what good can come from that? It's outdated and, and worse, outlandish if you think that's where purpose, that's where meaning of life is found. In a dead man dying on a tree? Really? If the human race is in love with its own wisdom, as humans, we are very impressed with ourselves. That's why our number one favorite topic is me. This infatuation with self goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three, when Satan sought to attack the intellect of, of Adam and Eve. And it's there where we see 
where man first exercised wisdom apart from God in Genesis 3 verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And from that moment on, man sought to live according to his own wisdom for his own purposes to build his own kingdom instead of building the kingdom of God for which we were created. And in various passages throughout the scriptures, when we come across the word wisdom, many times it relates to something that man is attempting to do apart from God. And the fundamental character of human wisdom is an attempt to reject God, to rebel against the God who created us. So for example, we read the Tower of Babel. Man used human wisdom and technology they developed to build this tower in order to reach the heavens. Why? Because it was their desire. Even today, this same arrogance and love of human wisdom still exists. For we have technology that brings human insights and information right to our fingertips on our smartphones. See, through Google, we can all be experts at just about any topic under the sun. And through technology, though, we deceive ourselves into thinking that we can almost be all-knowing and all-present beings. And the more that we know, the more our presence and the more our voice can be recognized and heard, we think the better off that we'll be. And the more open-minded, the more unconfined we are, we think the better off we will be. See, in Paul's day, as he tells us, the Jews, they were demanding miraculous signs. They wanted proof in action. Show me proof before I'm going to believe that you are the son of God. And the Greeks, on the other hand, they wanted eloquent words. Give me rational and logical systems and and structures that I can grasp, that I can understand before I'll believe. But see, no matter how many miracles Jesus performed, which were many, it was never going to be enough for them to believe. Paul says the cross of Jesus is a stumbling block to the Jews. Now today, the symbol of the cross, we see it everywhere. We see it on billboards, on TV, on roadsides. We wear it around our necks. But the cross to a first century Jew was scandalous. It was deeply offensive because they were waiting on a son of David to come and annihilate the Romans, not die on a Roman cross. And for the Greeks, the cross couldn't compare to their great poets and philosophers of Plato and Socrates and Aristotle. But see, really at its root, it was not about signs. It was not about eloquent words. What it was about was control. They wanted to play judge and jury over God himself. And we can fall into the exact same trap 2,000 years later. Because we want God to do for us what we desire. God, if if you'll do this for me, God, if you'll just give me this, then I'll believe that you're good. Then, Then I'll trust you with all areas of my life. What are ways in our lives that we're demanding signs, demanding proof from God before we'll trust him, before we yield our very wills and lives before him? And what circumstances is the proof of the cross not enough for you? 
See, we struggled, when we struggle to believe the gospel, we can give in to the whims and the standards of particular people and even social institutions as we try to seek their approval and seek their wisdom and thinking we're not gonna be able to survive without it. And it's all too easy to trade the security of the gospel, to trade the security that we are a son or daughter of the living God, to trade that for the fleeting praise and wisdom of man, of those who don't even know God. Verse 19, Paul goes on to quote from the Old Testament from Isaiah 24. And when Isaiah spoke these words, God's people were being threatened by the Assyrians, the power of the day. The Assyrians had already annihilated the northern kingdom. Now they were coming from Judah, the southern kingdom. And so Judah went to negotiate an alliance with Egypt. And so they thought through their cleverness and through their diplomacy, they didn't need God's help. They would handle it on their own and manage their own security. And so Isaiah said of God, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment, the intelligence of the discerning, I will thwart, I will frustrate. And that's what was promised in the Old Testament. What Paul is saying is that God has destroyed the wisdom of this world through the cross of Jesus Christ. See, the cross is the power of God because it defeated the sinful wisdom of this world. And Paul goes on and he asks these rhetorical questions of those in the day, the great minds of the day, and says to them, where is the one who's wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Who can stand up and speak against the cross? It's because the cross was a decisive blow that was given and there was nothing left to debate. The cross is the final answer to the wisdom of the world because at the cross, it shows the bankruptcy and the foolishness of human wisdom. It only leads to a dead end. And if we don't see the foolishness of human wisdom for eternal matters, then we are not really understanding what God is declaring in and through the cross of his son. Because Paul says there is no middle ground. There's a spiritual wisdom of God that is seen through the cross of the Jesus and there is the worldly wisdom, which is nothing but foolishness and a dead end. There is no way to leverage human wisdom to reach a holy God. And although the cross appears folly to those who are perishing, in fact, it's actually the wisdom of God that destroys human wisdom and it calls sinners to himself. Now in the midst of what the world pursues, next we see what the church has to proclaim to the world. Paul says in verse 21 that man cannot know God through human wisdom. Human wisdom, whether it's through literature, whether it's through science or mathematics or technology, it cannot forgive sins. It cannot deal with the guilt that you and I feel and experience because of our sin. Nor can it bring us into a relationship with God whereby we can be called son or daughter. And if it's true, that human knowledge has proven itself to be useless to lead us to true knowledge of God, and it is, then if God is ever going to be known, it will only be possible as a result of direct intervention and revelation by God himself who wants to be made known. And only the seemingly silly message of the gospel and the cross of Jesus can do this. Only by actually knowing the person of Jesus through a relationship with him can we be transformed, can we have the blinders of our eyes removed so that we can turn from our foolishness and turn to the work of Jesus. 
In verse 21, Paul says it's through the folly of preaching Christ crucified that sinners are saved. And what we see here is that those who are being saved live according to the standard of God's wisdom as they rightly view the, the cross as the power and wisdom of God that they need. And Paul contends that God sovereignly chose something that the wise of this world would think would be utterly foolish, a crucified savior as the means by which to bring about salvation for his people. And it is God alone who calls and who opens the eyes of the blind so that they can receive by faith the work that his son did for us. This is precisely why the gospel message sounds absurd and ludicrous to non-believers. And Paul says in verse 23 that the cross is the power of God, but how? Because it rescues us from ourselves. It's the cross alone that saves foolish sinners from our own helplessness. Jesus had to come to this earth. He had to live a perfect life, die a criminal's death so that you and I could be rescued and redeemed back to himself. This is the crazy reality of the gospel that God calls fools to faith through the folly of the cross. God is a God of generous mercy and grace to us who do not deserve it. And whereas the world can only hope in the fleeting and futile worldly wisdom in its forms of the latest fads and ideas and opinions and technology, we as believers in the midst of our greatest foolishness have hope, not because of our theology, not because of a, a set of answers or an outline, but because we believe that wisdom is a person and his name is Jesus. At the cross, we see the huge chasm that exists between us, a sinner, and God, the one who is righteous and holy. And no amount of evidence or proofs or signs can bridge that gap. The gap between us and God is so great that it had to come through the shed blood of Christ that could bridge the gap. And the only way that we know truth and wisdom of God is through a relationship with his son who died on a cross. I mean, think about what we are doing right now, right here in this place. You are here listening to me preach, wearing a robe, reading and preaching from an ancient document 2,000 years old. Think about how that sounds on the surface. What we are doing right now is utterly pointless and futile unless it's the power of God at work. The reason why you and I come here every Sunday to hear the word read and preach, it is because through the simple, plain preaching, not eloquent words of hidden wisdom, that God reveals Jesus to us. Each time Christ crucified is preached, the power of God is present. But do you believe that? Do you believe and do you know the miraculous sign of God's power when you see it with your eyes, when you hear it upon your ears? It's in the preaching of Christ crucified. It's in the edification of the saints through this same gospel message. It's in the conversion of sinners through this gospel message. It's in the hardening of hearts of sinners through this same gospel message. 
Christ crucified is the revelation of God's righteousness, his holiness, his redemption for those who believe, as Paul goes on to say in verse 30. But this message and even the means to reuniting us to God sounds utterly foolish and stupid to the watching world. But as one pastor notes, he says, can there possibly be a greater display of the intricate and powerful wisdom of God than the simultaneous punishment of sin and the mercy to the sinner through the death of God's perfect son? Can there be a greater display of the wisdom of God than this singular act wherein the unrelenting holiness of God is satisfied even as the persistent grace of God brings salvation to the guilty? It is this message that has opened our eyes, that has turned us from a path to folly, leading to destruction and death, back to the one who has redeemed us through his shed blood. And it is that very message that we are called to take upon our lips and proclaim to the world around us. And we shouldn't be shocked or surprised when that message is adamantly opposed, when we're mocked and when we're ridiculed, because that is increasingly going to be the case in this country. See, in the West, when it comes to sharing our faith, I think we often have this idea that we have to make the gospel sound more logical in order for people to receive it and believe it. So we're looking for this magic bullet that somehow is gonna unlock the key when we share our faith and people will receive it each time. But that's not by God's design. It's not about our perfectly polished presentation. It's not even about our charisma that we bring to the presentation. God saves sinners as his people share the seemingly absurd message that his son came to this earth, he lived a perfect life, died a criminal's death, and is raised on the third day and has promised to come back again to usher in the new heavens and the new earth. God uses the folly, the foolish, you and me, to shame the wise through that message. But if you're like me and you feel weak, afraid, unprepared, even struggle to find the words when you're sharing your faith at times, Paul would say to us, you're on the right track. Press on in faith. See, true godly wisdom is marked by submission and obedience to God. And as we avail ourselves to tell others about the crucified and risen Savior, God promises through the power of his spirit to turn the lost to himself that they might receive and hear for the first time this glorious news of redemption. You and I have all that we need if we will just open our mouths and speak of our crucified and risen Savior. See, as believers, we have nothing to be ashamed of in the cross because it's the ultimate demonstration of God's love and salvation for sinners like us. And so let us proclaim Christ crucified, trusting fully in the power and wisdom of God as he transforms not only our own lives, but also the lives of our neighbors in this community, down in the city and all around the world. Because God loves to rescue the lost from foolishness so that they can walk in the path of his wisdom and truth. And notice how Paul finishes this section. He finishes with these words. He says, for the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. How true are those words? See, the cross turns the world upside down. 
what seems foolish is actually the pathway to eternal life. Those who would know the power and wisdom of God must seek wisdom and power in no other place than the foolishness of God revealed through the foolishness of the crucified Savior. And so as we enter this holy week, let us be reminded and reflect upon the work that our Savior did for us that we did not deserve. And then let us take that message upon our lips and let us live it out day in and day out so that those who are lost can have the blinders removed and they can accept and receive this glorious good news. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the midst of our foolishness and wanting to run our own way, wanting to build our own kingdom and pursue our own desires, that you came after us all the way down to this earth to pursue us so that we could see the truth and the reality of where life is found, not in the things of this world that are foolish and that lead to a dead end, but through the path of the Lord Jesus who came who lived, who died, and who was raised again. And it is by faith in the finished work of Jesus that we can have life and have it abundantly. Father, would you embolden us even now as we go from this place and even as we come to this table to strengthen us so that we might boldly proclaim this news that has transformed our lives and give us a passion to wanna see it transform the lives of other men, women, and children that you bring us in contact with. And Father, as we see that fruit being born, we know it will not be because of us and because of our eloquence, only because of the power of the risen Savior and your spirit at work to do this. We pray this in Christ's matchless name, amen.